Bob Jaka is our guest speaker today. New Hope Community Church. To know, to live and to share Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to be able to be with, uh, with you here today. Uh, I praise the Lord for, for the opportunity to come and, and open the Word of God and, uh, and share that, uh, that with you. Um, I can tell that this, uh, this fellowship has roots in the Baptist church because you're all sitting in the back. And uh, the, the, the front is empty. And um, today with my uh, sinuses giving me some trouble, that's probably a, a good thing. But uh, nevertheless, it's, um, it's good to be able to, uh, to share uh, with, uh, with all of you, those who are of luck, like precious faith in, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I trust that if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, uh, that today might be the day uh, that that'll change. Uh, that you'll come to know the Lord Jesus as as the one who who died for you, who gave Himself for you, and um, who loves you beyond measure, and desires to to save you, desires to do a work in uh, in your heart. Um, I would ask that you would please bow with me in prayer as we begin. Father God, we thank you that we are able to come into your presence. I thank you, Father, for uh, the, the reminders this morning from Psalm 139 and elsewhere in Scripture, uh, through the songs that were sung, the Scriptures that were read, of, of who you are, and, and Lord, that, that you know us, that you are with us, that, Father, uh, you desire to draw near to us, you desire to minister to us. And I thank you, Lord, for these truths. I thank you that you are not a God who is disconnected uh, with uh, his creation, with us, but Lord, you desire uh, a most intimate relationship uh, with each and every one. And I praise you, Father, for this, and I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the ministry of your spirit, and I pray that he will use our time together to uh, do a work in our hearts, uh, and Lord, bring encouragement and strength and understanding, but more importantly, Father, closer to you, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I know that you have been uh, studying with Pastor Chuck uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to go to the Old Testament today, and uh, we're going to focus our attention today primarily on Psalm uh, 73. One of the things that I truly appreciate about God's word is the fact that it speaks so candidly to real life issues. I find great comfort and and encouragement in the fact that God has seen fit to not only give us the truth that we need in order to successfully navigate through this world and prepare for eternity, but he also shows us that many of the spiritual perplexities uh, that we struggle with today are the same ones that the writers of scripture struggled with in their own day. Psalm 73 is an excellent example of this. Here the psalmist Asaph is grappling with with, uh, a major contradiction, namely, why do wicked people prosper? And not only prosper, but oftentimes prosper more than the godly do. Now, before we go any further, it's important that we clarify what we mean by 
prospering and prosperity. Uh, prosperity here is not limited to material wealth. That may be the first thing that comes into our minds. Uh, but, but prosperity covers a whole a gamut of benefits and blessings that makes life easier, more enjoyable, including physical health, success, affluence, and, and, and so on. Now, given our perception of of justice, and we have an innate understanding of, of what is just, it seems only fair that God would reward righteous living with blessings that would result in prosperity. But he would withhold or even take away those very same blessings, those benefits, from individuals who do wrong. But is that what we typically see in our world today? Has that always been your experience? Wouldn't you agree that all too often wrongdoers seem to be the ones that that fare better and get ahead in the world, while those who are uh, the true disciples, true followers of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who try to live their lives based upon uh, biblical principles, a biblical morality, these individuals are placed at a definite disadvantage in our society today, and increasingly so. Now, how can this be? How can God allow such inequity to exist? It seems to contradict the very character of God, particularly the justice of God. In Psalm 73, the writer Asaph is struggling to get his head wrapped around this and to understand how a just God can allow those who who not only reject him, not only uh, dismiss his his holy word, um, but those who openly mock him and who aggressively uh, persecute those who do uh, follow the Lord. How can God allow such people to live more comfortably oftentimes with less struggle than his own children who try their very best to follow him? to direct their lives according to the the teachings of Scripture. Have you ever struggled with this? Have, Have you ever been frustrated by this enigma, this inequity? I have. When I see prominent individuals, especially politicians who who break multiple laws, violate the very constitution, they they are sworn to defend and uphold. They lie about it and then somehow not only get away with it, but they gain even more power, more prestige, more popularity. While godly people who believe Jesus Christ is is man's only savior. They believe that God's word is true and that it is the final authority for faith and practice. These people are often raked over the coals in the media. We often hear of individuals being taken to, to court and forced to incur tremendous personal debt to, to defend 
the Christian faith. And when I hear about this, when I see this inequity, I start scratching my head and trying to figure out um, how this works with Romans 8.28, where we read that, that all things work together for good who love the Lord. Because right now, those who love the Lord oftentimes seems to be getting the raw end of the deal. This is where Psalm 73 comes in. This psalm can be divided into, into two parts. The first part, uh, Asaph describes his personal dilemma. His issue. Asaph had a real problem that caused him great distress and he walks us through that. So let's, let's follow. He begins by stating what he knew was true. That's always a good place to start. Verse 1, follow along with me. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Being a Hebrew, Asaph was familiar with the promises God gave to, to Abraham and his descendants. That, that they would be God's chosen people and blessed like no other nation on earth. Asaph was well versed in, in the Mosaic law and he understood the details of the, the Davidic covenant uh, that outlined Israel's glorious future. As a Levite, Asaph was even charged with teaching and, and reminding others of Israel's unique relationship with God from 1 Chronicles chapter 15. We learn that Asaph directed one of the temple choirs. He was a worship leader in, in Israel. He led in songs of, of praise that, that recounted God's grace and faithfulness, his mighty deeds that, that brought repeated deliverance to Israel throughout their history. So Asaph knew that, that God was good because both history and, and scripture provided overwhelming evidence to that truth. However, there was a profound discrepancy between what Asaph knew to be true and what he saw going on around him. The people of God, and more particularly, as he, as he refers to in, in verse 1, the pure in heart, they were struggling. They were having a very, very difficult time. Now, according to Psalm 24, the pure in heart are those who will dwell with God in heaven. So, in other words, he, it's, it's a, a reference to, to true believers, born-again believers, the redeemed, children of God who, whose sins have been graciously forgiven in, in response to genuine repentant faith. If anyone could expect God's blessing, if anyone could, could expect God to come to their aid when injustice occurs... It would be the true believer, right? But Asaph indicates that wasn't happening. So the incongruity between what Asaph knew to be true about God and what he saw going on around him caused him great confusion and turmoil within his spirit. And so he writes in verse 2, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. 
here Asaph is is acknowledging. He almost fell for thinking, you know, maybe it doesn't pay to wholeheartedly follow God. If God lets some people get away with doing wrong, why do I really have to worry about doing everything right? God has to cut me some slack too, after all. That's only fair. The more Asaph entertained such thoughts, the more he resented coming up short. In verse 3, he honestly confessed where he was at. He he had self-pity. He was resentful for how much better he perceived the unsaved to be, these prosperous, successful individuals. He says, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Now, before we go on, understand, Scripture warns us not to fall into that psychological trap. We're not supposed to go down this, this road. Psalm 73 warns against it, but, but we could also add um, Proverbs 23, 17, where, where we are instructed, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Or Proverbs 24, 19 and 20, do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And many other passages can be added to to reinforce the same truth that it doesn't pay to rebel against God. That it is foolish to abandon the Bible and godly principles. But when you look how some really ungodly people are living, you know, their life may look pretty good. It can appear appealing. We rarely see the the clouds of impending doom hanging over their heads. In verses 4 through 9, Asaph continues to, to describe just how enticing an ungodly lifestyle can be. Now in verse 4, the NASB, um, the New American Standard Bible that, I, that I'm reading from this morning, it says, there are no pains in death and their body is fat. Now that doesn't mean that Asaph is talking about people who are really obese. It's it's an expression meaning that these individuals have an abundance of things, of comforts, and and they generally enjoy good health right up to the point of their death. And that's why the NIV, which I know many of you have, reads... They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. In other words, life is good. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Asaph would have been familiar 
with Job chapter 5 and, and verse 7, where we read that man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. What that verse is saying is that struggles are a normal part of life in this, in this fallen world. So trials and hardships are to be expected. We're all going to experience them. Yet quite often, the wicked appear to be exempt from many of the normal struggles and, and the frustrations of life. They seem to get a free pass somehow. And when that is the case, those individuals can, can often grow quite proud. Verse, verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. Asaph is, is saying here that, that they strut about with um, a, a superior attitude. And everybody can see that they know that, that they think very highly of themselves. Their pride oftentimes is, is also evidenced in the cruel and demeaning treatment of others. That's why verse 6 continues. The garment of violence covers them. It means that, that the wicked, the ungodly, will, will oftentimes bully and manipulate others to, to get what they want. Because they believe they're entitled to it. They're not going to wait around to be rewarded. They're going to take it. Verse 7. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Asaph here is telling us that really the, the, the more they get, the more they want. They're never satisfied but are, but are consumed with dreams of, of more and the next conquest. Perhaps you know someone like this. Now, what, is, what does all of this lead to? Well, verses 8 and 9 tell us that it leads to blaspheming God and becoming even more proud and boastful. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 10 reports that, that the people who envy the prosperity of, of these arrogant individuals, they're going to be drawn uh, to them and they're going to listen to what these arrogant individuals are going to say, um, hoping that it's going to lead to their own success. And they're going to soak, all, soak it all in, or really, as verse 10 uh, indicates, uh, they'll drink it in. They'll drink it all up. Then what happens? Well, when people get away with wrongdoing, it's only natural to begin questioning the character of God. And that's what we find in verse 11. How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? You see, when, when God doesn't quickly act to bring justice, the wicked are very quick to conclude, well, it's because God doesn't know anything about it. He's not omniscient. 
He doesn't know everything. He's not aware of all that is going on in the world. Because if he did know about the injustice, then he would have to act, right? Otherwise, he would not be just. Either he wouldn't be just or he wouldn't be omnipotent. He wouldn't have the power. He wouldn't have the authority to to hold individuals accountable and to and to bring about justice. Now think about all of that. If if God if his knowledge if his power and authority if if they are limited hey all of us can live any way we want to, right? After all, what can God really do about it? Do you see how dangerous this kind of thinking is? It's it's wrong. It's purely humanistic, but it's become very, very popular in our day as as well as Asaph's. This afternoon, I would encourage you to um, take some time to... Read Psalm 50, verses 16 through 23. It's a short section, but in that section, God himself talks about this very issue. He addresses this kind of attitude. But back to Psalm 73, verse verse 12 summarizes, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Can you say that? Can the godly say that? That that they have an easy time of it? No. And so Asaph's turmoil climaxes in verses 13 and, and 14 as he begins to consider. Look at verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Now Asaph is not there claiming to be sinless. He's not claiming to be a, a perfect individual. Uh, what he's saying is he, he had a clear conscience He really tried to to do the right thing, follow God's word, stay on the straight and narrow. But where did all of his effort and sacrifice get him? Verse 14, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Instead of God relieving his struggles, they seem only to have been multiplied. Can you relate to that? Can, can you think as, as Asaph has? Have you wondered why God doesn't bring relief to you at some times? Why he doesn't straighten things out? What do you do when you reach that point? When you're ready to, to give up and abandon what you have known and believed to be true. To embrace what appears to be working for others. Habakkuk wrote, the just shall live by faith. But when faith doesn't yield, 
the benefits that we see others have, what do we do? Do we alter our beliefs that are derived from the infallible Word of God to bring them in line with with what we see? Asaph thought about doing that. He contemplated it very seriously in verse 15. He, He says, if I had said, I will speak thus. Meaning, if Asaph adopted the thinking that he just spoke of in verses 13 and 14, that it doesn't pay to wholeheartedly follow God, if Asaph had abandoned his biblical convictions, he realized that he would have been betraying his brothers and sisters in the faith. Verse 15. Behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Asaph would have been responsible for leading other believers astray by undermining their faith in the one true God. He would have plunged them into turmoil. And the thought of doing that weighed very heavy. It added to his his distress that he he was grappling with. And so in verse 16, he writes, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. This was Asaph's dilemma. What do you do with all of the injustice in the world? How are we to understand this? Asaph grappled with that. I love the first word of verse 17. Until. Asaph said, this was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Speaking of the unrighteous. Instead of discussing his perplexity with other men to get their thoughts on the subject, Asaph very wisely took his quandary to God. And when he did, what began as a personal dilemma was transformed into a precious discovery. A precious discovery. When Asaph stopped looking around and started looking up to God, when he stopped wrestling with God... To worship God, his perplexity was replaced with with a divine peace as God began to put things into proper perspective for him. We know that because of the last part of verse 17. I perceived their end. Do you know why God doesn't immediately strike down sinners? When Paul discusses the issue of God's judgment, the inevitability of it, he does so very clearly in the opening chapters of of the book of Romans. 
In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, he warns against misinterpreting the actions and the character itself of God. Um, Hold your place here in Psalm 73 and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. It's important that you see this for yourself. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. At the end of verse 3, he he speaks of uh, the judgment of God. But then in verse 4, he says, Do you think lightly? In other words, do you trivialize the riches of his, God's, Kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. When we think God is on the sidelines not doing anything about all of the injustices, what, what Paul is telling us, what Scripture reinforces, what, what Asaph came to understand was that God was very much active. He was mercifully and patiently extending His kindness, uh, His grace to individuals. Why? So that they would repent. So that they would have a change of mind and begin to see things as they truly are. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that God takes no delight in sending people to hell. He doesn't enjoy punishing people. God desires that people repent of their sin. That they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and and receive the free gift of salvation that God is offering them. So that he can bless them then with eternal life. and, And draw them, begin to draw them closer and closer to himself. Where we will experience Sweet fellowship and communion with God himself. That's really what God desires to do. This was the turning point for Asaph. Gaining this insight really can can be a turning point for us as, as well. It was a moment for, for him when Asaph's thinking was clouded by, by faulty humanistic reasoning. His thinking was brought back to the truth. More often than, than not, when we are struggling with dilemmas of our own, that's exactly what we need to do as well. When we're perplexed, we need insight. We need to take our Bibles and get alone with God. We must allow the Holy Spirit to use His sword, His Word, to to probe our thoughts and to renew our minds with the the knowledge that, that comes only from on high. Not human thinking, but divine insight. 
the Spirit will provide that through His Word to us. Isn't that really what God promised us to do for us in James chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. In other words, he's not going to hold it against us that we don't know the answer. He knows we don't know the answers. He wants us to come to him because he does. And he will do great and mighty things far beyond what we can possibly imagine. When Asaph got alone with God, three things came into focus. First, Asaph was was reminded of the fate of the wicked. And he says, says here in verse 18, Surely you, referring to God, Set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. The wicked may appear to have the upper hand right now and be boasting just as the rich fool of Luke chapter 12 who, who didn't know that judgment was at the door and he was facing torment for all eternity. A holy God must punish sin. All sin. There is no escape. That's why he sent Jesus. Now even though Asaph wasn't familiar with the name Jesus, he knew of the Messiah. And when he remembered the sobering truth of eternal punishment for all who do not repent and turn to God, he realized that he needed to repent himself. He needed to repent of the envy that blinded him. And that's what we find in verses 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered, then I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Envy made Asaph irrational. He had to repent of his foolish, sinful reasoning. And when he did repent, Asaph then could once again, and this is the third point, rejoice in his relationship with God. Notice how he describes his relationship in verses 23 and and 24. It's It's an overall view. He speaks of the past, the present, and the future. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you guide me. And afterward will receive me into glory. In the past, God got a hold of Asaph in his life, delivered him from his sin. In the present, God was guiding him through the the Spirit and, and the Word. And in the future, God would glorify him. As Asaph considered all this, he was moved to express the thrill of his relationship with God. And so he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Now this is a rhetorical question. And it carries the obvious response that that there is no one but God who, who can capture the redeemed's attention like God. 
of all that heaven has to offer, of all who will be in heaven, none, none is more important or more desirable than God himself. There is no greater blessing than to draw near to our creator God. And what is true of of heaven is also to be true here on earth. And so Asaph adds, besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. Do you see what Asaph discovered? Earlier he was envious of the wicked wicked thinking that that they they prospered. Uh, They were were so very well off. But when he took time to, to get alone with God, he realized that he was the truly rich one. And the arrogant are doomed. So the pity that he once had for himself were now, was now turned to the unsaved. To these individuals who didn't have the relationship with God that Asaph had. See, he understood the foolishness of gaining the whole world but losing one's own soul. And so he wrote in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Asaph once thought, hey, it's vain for me to keep my heart pure. But he discovered that the pursuit of holiness is the only way to draw near to God and to experience the greatest of his blessings. And so Asaph was compelled to tell others, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph's discovery was too great to keep to himself. He had to share it. Shouldn't we do the same? Psalm 73 describes a faith that was painfully tried, but ultimately victorious. It's an exhortation to each of us who know the Lord to stand firmly upon the truth of God's word while following the example of the Lord Jesus himself who patiently endured all the injustices done to him. And how did he do it? How could he handle it? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, we read that he kept entrusting himself to the one, to the Father, who judges righteously. The prosperity of the wicked is short-lived. The rewards of the righteous are eternal. So you tell me, who's really better off? Bow with me. With heads bowed, I don't know if you have, have struggled with this, and I'm not sure what your relationship is with, with God. I don't know if, if you have come to the point where you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior. If not, I urge you, please, do so. Understand that he died on the cross for you. He came to endure 
all of the wrath that you and I deserve because of our sin. He did not sin. He didn't deserve any of it. And yet he willingly volunteered himself to take our sin upon himself so that God could forgive us when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe that Jesus did what the Bible tells us he came to do. If you've never before trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, do it today. Do it right now. Call out to God. Repent of your sin. Place your faith wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. If you have questions about this, there will be individuals up front who will be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to talk to you as well. But let's not go down the path that is futile. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the ways that you use it to minister to our hearts. And I thank you, Lord, for this precious opportunity to be with these folks here today. Lord, use this word. Use your truth in each of our hearts. For we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.